Hey, lovebirds. This month is Podcast Appreciation Month, which means I'm going to ask you for money, which is so hard for me to do because of all of this shame that I have around money. But the reality is this show costs money to produce, and it is partially listener-funded, which is incredible, and partially Sean-funded, which is less incredible and also not sustainable. So if you believe in this work, and you want this show to continue, the best thing you can do is become a contributing lovebird by making a small but meaningful contribution that goes directly to the production of this show. Monthly contributions start for as little as $5 a month, or the price of a decent chocolate bar. Your $5 makes a huge difference in my life. And for everybody who has already donated, your support means the world to me. Thank you. Thank you. And here is your episode. Yeah, in certain contexts, it might be true, right? If we're on the battlefield, yeah, don't show your vulnerability. That's probably a good move. But the battlefield of life, I think, requires vulnerability these days, especially if you want great relationships. I want great relationships, and I suspect that you do as well. You've heard me talk about this idea that we never learn how to love, and we never learn how to do relationships in school. And also, maybe our family of origin didn't really model for us effectively what it means to be good at relationship. And my guest is Jason Gaddis. He is the founder of The Relationship School and also the Smart Couple Podcast. And what we're talking about today is male vulnerability. What it means to be vulnerable in the battlefield of life. What it means to be emotionally available and how we can move towards that to have more fulfilling and connected relationships. We also talk about the ways in which we numb and shut down and close our hearts when the going gets rough and the power and the courage that it takes to open up and to be vulnerable to our partners and to our friends and to our loved ones and how it's that vulnerability and that courage and that openness which allows us to have deep and fulfilling relationships. And ultimately, that is what I want. I want, I want connectedness with all my loved ones. My name is Sean Galanos, and this is The Love Drive. Sounds good? Yeah. Okay. Jason, could you please introduce yourself? Yeah. My name is Jason Gaddis, and I'm founder of the Relationship School and host of the Smart Couple, soon-to-be Relationship School podcast. And I am a dad, I'm a husband, and I'm happy to be here. I'm happy that you're here. 
Uh, I was introduced to your work maybe last year by by a friend. It was the same person that uh, her and I went to the the Kripalu Turn Relationship Conflict into Love workshop that you did there a few months ago. Yeah. And she introduced me to your stuff la- last year. And I'm, I'm just going to share this with you and with the Love Drive listeners that I felt really threatened by you mm. from the get-go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I was like, no, fuck that guy. <laughs> I was like, I didn't know you. I didn't know you. I didn't even really know your work. But for some reason, as a man, I felt threatened by you. Yeah. And it was just really weird because I often feel threatened by men who have the things that I want. Mm. So, f- you know, for you, it was like you've got, you have kids, you have a relationship, you have things that I want. And for some reason, that threatens me. Like we mm. can't both have those things. Mm. Right. There's some deep down competitive thing or something. Yeah. And then, you know, you, have the successful podcast, you've got, you know, the relationship school, you've got the background in, in psychotherapy, you've got the coaching practice, and all of these things are things that I want, and I feel envious. Mm. And that, to me, was like a block, right? I was like unable to even want to try connecting with you or with your content because of this weird competitive thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious, like, do you have any idea why this stuff was coming up for me? Um, well, you sound onto yourself. I appreciate the vulnerability there and the transparency. It's always inspiring when men can just talk like this. So thanks for that modeling for your listeners here. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's kind of in our, it's probably in our biology um, to compete with one another, to feel threatened by someone who's farther along or looks like they have more or... They have things we want. Uh, I think that's pretty human. Um, but men in particular, like women might do that with their bodies or um, different things. But men, it's about, it's definitely about like success, perceived success. Um, I mean, I get that way with certain men, so I can relate. Yeah. I don't get that with that way with women. Like when I see really successful women, I go, oh, you go girl. <laughs> what can I do to support mm-hmm. you? Mm-hmm. But, you know, maybe it has something to do with the family system that I had growing up, you know, and success being important and me feeling like I never really had financial success and just sort of positioning myself against other people based on that or or, or lack of that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, an, it's an interesting conversation, um, why we separate and kind of push away. Like, I'm really grateful you didn't, you worked with yourself enough that you didn't push me away because we wouldn't be talking and I wouldn't have met you in person. And I, I feel like I had a good connection with you. And I was like, oh, dude, this guy's solid. So it was fun to meet you. And had you listened to that part of yourself, you know, you you limit probably what's possible for you. So I, clearly you're not that type of dude. So that's cool. And when when my friend invited me to to Kripalu to do the workshop, you know, immediate, you know, the first reaction was like, definitely not, <laughs> not going there. And then the other reaction was like, whoa, dude, maybe I could explore that mm-hmm. and really find out what's that all about, and and just just go because a it means a lot to my friend and she really respects you and your work, 
And then I started digging into your stuff and really, really appreciating, you know, the, the amount, the breadth and the depth of your work. And then when I showed up, like all that other stuff went away. It all disappeared. Huh, I was just going to ask you, well, yeah, what, what shifted? Was it just meeting, meeting in person or what, was there anything specifically you did to like kind of overcome the resistance? I mean, I just made a decision to go and explore what, mm-hmm. just going to the workshop, trusting a friend, first of all. And, and then also going to see what would happen if I actually went and would that like weird fake resentment melt away. Mm-hmm. And it did. <laughs> Sounds pretty straightforward. Like you didn't have to do 10 therapy sessions or anything like that. No, I just went. And then you, <laughs> it's funny, I kept on laughing to myself during the workshop because you would say something really profound or I was really touched by something. And I would just, I would laugh at my own insecurities mm. or this story that I had built up a, a, about you, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. it, it's not based in reality. And I want to live in, I want to live in reality. Yeah. Thanks for that, man. Anyway, so that's just my little <laughs> intro story. Cool. Uh, I got a lot out of, out of the workshop and I'm, I'm curious what led you to do this work. Yeah, my constant, my a bunch of things, right? My family constellation growing up, my sensitivity, and then my years of posturing over that sensitivity for fear of rejection led me, all of that led me into relationships with women where I was very emotionally guarded and uh, was afraid to get hurt because opening meant getting hurt. And I didn't know this at the time. I just thought women were annoying when you got close with them. And a series of many failed relationships brought me to my knees. And I was like, I think I'm the problem here. I don't think it's the women I've been blaming for 10 years. I think it's me. And that was really a shift in my life. That was when I took responsibility for this part of my life. And I I really started to get my shit together and go on a path and a journey to discover who I was and what was preventing me from love, which is deep down what I really wanted. And then what was the path, right? I mean, at some point you, you realized that you were the problem and then what did Mm -hmm. you do to start exploring that? Yeah. So I, I left a lot of my friends behind, um, went to grad school here in Boulder, Colorado at Naropa university and didn't know anybody and uh, moved to a new town all by myself and uh, enrolled in therapy and started studying psychology and studying myself uh, extremely closely and um, eventually enrolled in like a group therapy type experience, um, another training where it was just all group work and started meditating and started reading everything I could get my hands on about love, the mind, um, healing, you know, wholeness, depression, anxiety, all of it, men, what, what, what our problem is, why are we so guarded? Uh, eventually met my wife and through our relationship started, you know, it was the, kind of the first relationship with an adult woman uh, that could, felt like could meet me and call bullshit on me. Prior to this, none of the women I dated were, kind of had their own back in a way that could call BS on me. And that was always annoying, but also kind of nice because it let me off the hook. But my wife was different and um, we just started trying to work it out. You know, we were both studying to be psychotherapists and she was 
we would just process our shit for hours. And it was really interesting for us. It was painful, but it was also fascinating, you know? So all of that and being able to, you know, I found a great meditation teacher and started to learn how to be with my experience. I didn't, I didn't really know how to be with my experience. I was medicating uh, mostly with drugs and alcohol and extreme sports prior to that. And it was really nice to start to come back into myself. As I say, it was like coming home to myself. And I'd say relationship ended up being the, the main vehicle ultimately, but there were lots of things like therapy and meditation and group work that, and men's groups that helped me along the way. You mentioned being, uh, uh, sort of struggling with your sensitivity growing up. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, I was a sensitive, emotional, empathic boy, and I got the message from my environment that that wasn't okay. And this is still largely how we treat boys. Uh, we tell them to act like men or tough it up or don't be a pussy or don't act like a girl. And so, you know, little boys just put on a mask to not show too much emotion because then they'll get rejected. So I was that sensitive kid. And, you know, if you're sensitive like me, then you, your sensitivity doesn't go anywhere. It's like, no matter how much you try to compartmentalize it, it's still there. Um, you can't burn it away. You can't get rid of it. It's not, it's just there. So, you know, that was just, that made my relationship life and friends, social life really um, complicated to say the least. Yeah. I was that sensitive kid growing up for sure. Yeah. I'm still that sensitive kid. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I, I really appreciate my sensitivity. It's my superpower and it's uh, something I really love about myself. Yeah. Like it was, <laughs> I cried at Burning Man a couple of years ago in, in like a cafeteria situation. My buddy looked at me and he's like, God, what are you doing? You know, like you can't be crying. And the message was, you can't cry in public, mm. you know, in front of all these people. And I just couldn't, couldn't help myself. Also, I didn't really care. Nice. Um, I get the the impression that it's that vulnerability that really allows people like you and I to connect in a meaningful way. That's right. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, we might be posturing and connecting that way and talking about something like the game or climbing. You know, I tons of male, great male climbing friends, but we didn't talk that deeply. I don't know. That was me back in the day prior to, you know, working on myself. I was kind of trying in my own way, but um, I was always very thoughtful, but invariably the, the conversation would come back around to the last climbing trip or the last climbing move or the, the wall we were about to do or, you know, yeah, cause that's where guys, a lot of guys connect. Well, maybe that's why you stopped climbing. Well, like I said, eventually once I found personal growth and started, uh, understanding my own mind and, um, the psychology of what was going on inside, that was way more fascinating than, than a rock with mm. a crack in it for me. <laughs> I still appreciate rock with a crack in it. <laughs> I, I do too. <laughs> and I appreciate mostly that just being out in nature, you know, it's nature is one of my happy places for sure. Yeah. I did a, an interview with the woman, Jordana Jacobs, Dr. Jordana Jacobs, and she studies the relationship between um, death and love. Mm. And the reason a lot of people gravitate towards extreme sports is because they are inherently very, very dangerous. And when you're practicing them, it's a form of meditation because you can't think of anything else but essentially not dying. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. And here's another take that for me, uh, why I pushed myself so hard in my 20s with these extreme sports and kind of soloing things that I shouldn't have been soloing and was because it was the only place I felt alive because I'd go back home and I felt dead. 
Yeah. I can relate. Yeah. And I can also relate to having relationships with men that are fairly superficial. And I'm not that interested in furthering those relationships that much. Like, we'll, we'll, it'll stay superficial unless one of us is willing to go deeper. And usually that's me. And it's not always met with, it's not always reciprocated. Right. And, and a person, a man who hasn't really worked on himself, uh, doesn't know what to do with you. If you start going deeper and getting vulnerable, he's cause he hasn't been there. He can't really handle it or you. And so it's, um, usually those are not very nourishing conversations. So I, I definitely temper what I share and how I share with those friends of mine that are, um, more distant in that way. Mm. You and I both talk about intimacy and vulnerability and relationships and love. And I, I look at my, my audience and it's a good majority of women that are engaged mm-hmm. with the content. Mm-hmm. Is that the same? Are you seeing the same patterns with you? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'd say women are, Historically and still now leading the conversation around relationships. Um, I think younger millennial men are getting a little more hip here and interested. Um, because uh, I think the the great women out there are calling this element forward saying, hey, we want, we're the dudes that are like the in their hearts and in their bodies and want to talk about what's actually going on. And I think there's a real call out there for for men to step up and some, some men in the, that are older, they're just maybe stuck in their ways. I don't know, but, uh, pain, you know, usually brings us to our knees like me. Uh, but it seems like younger men, I don't know what your take is. Um, I don't know how old you are, but guys in their twenties are seem a little more open to this stuff. What do you think about that? I, I wish I had access to men in their twenties. I don't, I don't know where they, <laughs> I don't know where they hang out. I'm in my mid thirties. Mm-hmm. And the people that are engaging with my content are are women, you know, twenty five to forty five. Yeah, and I'd love to figure out how to access more men, mm-hmm. and I I don't know how to do it. Yeah, I mean, I, this is a you know maybe a longer conversation, but before I was doing the relationship school, I I started a company called Revolutionary Man, and I was on a mission to change men. And I learned a lot in that process and I did lots of men's work and men's retreats and men's trainings and um, found men that wanted to do the work. So they're out there, but they're, um, and I'm, I'm always really grateful when men are doing men's work or just doing work on themselves internally. It's always a hell yes for me. Uh, but I, I just, what I'm seeing out there is with the young millennial men who want to be successful in life. Um, and they follow people like Tim Ferriss and Gary Vaynerchuk and sort of influencers like that. Those guys are making personal growth, I think a little more hip. Mm. And I think that's having an impact on these younger guys. They're willing to read books. They're willing to look inside. They're willing to talk about what's actually going on internally. That's just my assessment. And uh, it's not necessarily firsthand other than a few guys here and there and that, that I know, but just what I, what I'm observing from, from over here. Yeah. I guess I was taught as, as a man that vulnerability was a sign of weakness and to show weakness is, could be damaging. 
Yeah. And yeah. I'm curious, how do we reverse this message? Because it's, it's not true for the most part. Right. It's not true. Um, yeah. In certain contexts, it might be true, right? If we're on the battlefield, yeah, don't show your vulnerability. That's probably a good move. Um, but the battlefield of life, I think, requires vulnerability these days, especially if you want great relationships and you want to be a great leader in your business or a uh, great CEO or boss. You got you to gotta have a heart, you know. But how do we reverse this? To me, it's all about boys. Um, it's how we raise boys. So if we can raise boys differently and continue to protect their their vulnerability and say, yes, yes, more of that. Yep, cry. Yep, do all you want there. Yep, and get back up and get back in the game. Do both. I think we're, we're going to raise more relationally, emotionally intelligent leaders who, you know, ultimately are going to be the guys having successful marriages in their 40s. Mm. There's a book called Boys by uh, Rachel Gisa, who's an author in Toronto. Have you heard of her? Uh, no. She did a lot of a lot of research on what exactly what you're talking about, supporting and nurturing young boys and, and modeling healthy, vulnerable relationship strategies and, and how to show up authentically and how that affects them long term. Mm-hmm. And and you know, the research is there. It it makes yeah. more authentic and empathetic boys and men. Yeah, exactly. And um yeah, I mean, if women are like craving for like great men, you know, then that have hearts and are connected to their vulnerability, then um, then let's talk to parents and, you know, schools and all the people are, who are raising boys. And let's, um, uh, that's again, where the conversation needs to be, in my opinion. And are you doing some of that work with the relationship school? Uh, you could say we are. I'd say it's not direct. I mean, that's one of my side secret projects is to change parents and how they raise boys. And so people that come to the relationship school, I'd say at least 50 to 75% of which are parents, because that's my demographic, they get very moved and inspired about how what we teach dramatically changes their relationship with their kids because they are now being with their children in a whole new way. And it's, it's incredible to, to hear some of these parents' stories about their teenagers transforming, teenage boys and girls. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, we're doing it. We're in, um, we're in a couple of high schools uh, doing pilot programs with high school seniors and juniors on te- learning a relationship class, kind of a psychology of relationships. And it's going really well so far. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that's that was the thought of, you know, I was thinking, oh, this stuff needs to be in schools. Yeah. And when once it's in schools, then at least at least some kids will have access to it. I mean, they're not yeah. all going to listen, but for those I mean, I think I would have really enjoyed that in school. I don't I th- maybe would have, but I don't know if I was ready. I might have um made fun of it, even though I secretly wanted it. I'm not sure, but had, had the marketing been right or had there been a mentor, like a really cool teacher that was like teaching it, I, I probably would have been there. I was described as, um, rambunctious, outspoken, the class clown and, um, Hmm. maybe, yeah, uh, maybe, uh, maybe obnoxious. Uh, These are all words that like teachers had written in my 
my report card. Yeah. So today you would have been labeled ADD or ADHD? Oh, maybe. Okay. Yeah. But I was also really smart. And I, I, I don't think it, it school was like interesting enough for me. So I just, yeah, I was, I was a huge distraction to everybody else. <laughs> you were like testing the, testing the limits big time. That's great. I always loved the smart kids that were like fucking with the, the program. I just didn't listen. I just, that was my thing. <laughs> what did you do? Just daydream? Yeah, I got out every, you know, senior year, I was out at 10 a.m. every day going skiing. Um, I was on a ski team, ski racing team. and But I, I wasn't even doing that. I was just fucking off. And art was my favorite subject. I had one memorable teacher out of 12 years. Um, you know, I just skated by and got bees. And um, I didn't really apply myself. I can relate. I graduated with a 2.4. Nice. <laughs> from you. Yeah. Look at me now. From uh, UC Santa Barbara, you know, ba- barely graduated. Barely uh-huh. graduated. But that's because I, I was, I was self medicating with drugs and alcohol from the age of 15 to 25. Hmm. Um, because for me, life was too complicated and I had too many emotions that I didn't know what to do with. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have anybody to show me what healthy behavior looked like. And so I, I tamped it down, you know, yeah. like I, I, I definitely medicated. And when, whenever I smoked pot, I, I, it just, it dampened my emotions almost completely. Mm-hmm. And then I can just, you know, I can connect with people on a, on a superficial level, but it wasn't painful. That's interesting because I I it was I think it was similar for me when I smoked pot. I didn't smoke it till I was nineteen, and I smoked it all day every day my freshman year and almost flunked, flunked out of freshman year. But eventually, it became the social dynamics got too intense for me to navigate while I was high, and I would start to get paranoid. So I eventually quit smoking pot because of my social anxiety, and it was um, yeah, it was freaking me out. You know, it's like um, I was just it was basically highlighting my insecurities that were already there. Right. But you you said earlier that you were using drugs and drugs and alcohol to self medicate. What were you mm-hmm. medicating? What was I medicating over? Yeah. Well, my depression, my anxiety, uh, the fact that I was lost. I didn't really know myself, and I didn't know where I was going. And uh, you know, I got eventually got good at the social game and had lots of friends around me, but I felt really alone. And that lonely feeling of you're, you've got a lot of people, but you feel alone was brutal. And I just would rather be outside climbing or skiing or getting high or drinking beer or doing psychedelics, you know? Yeah. Um, like alone in a crowded room type of scenario. Yeah. Right. It's funny. You just mentioned, you know, not, knowing where your place was. I'm sort of paraphrasing, but you know, not knowing what you're doing and and I feel that we don't really talk about how normal that is. It mm-hmm. took me until I was like 32 to figure out what I was doing and some days I still don't really know what I'm doing. Like I question the choices that I've made that have led me to to this day. Yeah. Yep. I mean, some people are saying that late, early adulthood now is kind of like late adolescence. I mean, most people, it's adolescence is basically extending, and Dan Siegel writes about this, now it's up to 24, according to him. And a lot of people say that it's it's even later, that 
we're kind of figuring ourselves out until our 30s and even our 40s. And this is, of course, privileged people that have the time and resources and energy to even inquire about this versus like, I got to get a job and like survive. I always struggled with what I was going to do because of course I came from a a place of privilege. Like if my father was a broke cobbler, I was going to be a cobbler because Mm. that's all I knew. Right. Mm -hmm. But now there's so much possibility. If you have some privilege, you could pretty much do whatever you want. Right. Which for privileged people is actually quite crippling because it's like decision fatigue. It's like choice overwhelm. Yep. You know, there's so much, so many options and yeah, be yourself. You can do whatever you want in life is, I think, I think for privileged people, it's pretty overwhelming um, and shuts people down, even though it's like to people without privilege, it sounds pretty nice. Um, being inside of it is a little different. Yeah. Follow your passion. Yeah. Follow your bliss. Right. Yeah. Which I think is not great advice because it's really hard to make a living out of following your passion. Yeah. I mean, that's what a lot of people sell. And I I think it's, I think you can do it. You know, ultimately I think the most fulfilled people are the ones who are living their purpose and their mission in life, but it's a journey to get there. It's more of like a hero's journey. As Joseph Campbell says, you know, it's like slogging through the weeds. It's making lots of dead ends and failing multiple times. It's trying a bunch of shit, bunch of different shit. It's moving around a lot. It's traveling, you know, it's like finding yourself is, is really intense. And that's why I love relationships so much is because it's pretty immediate in terms of a reflection of who you are. Mm. Yeah. And I can imagine that when you are going through your hero's journey, right, you're slogging through it and you're failing and you're failing and you're failing and you're pivoting and you're wondering what the fuck you're doing. must be really nice to have somebody there by your side to support you through that journey. Yeah. Yeah, when you're feeling lost or down or you don't believe in yourself. Yeah, and it's also helpful to have someone who triggers you and is um, your true colors come out and you can't hide from your true colors. Like you, when you're being an asshole in your own house with your partner, uh, that's hard to hide. And it's like, oh, this is part of me too. And a lot of people want to run away from that and not not admit that because they, then they go back to their friends and yeah, we're great, everything's great. When it's the more true statement is, yeah, we're not great and I don't know myself and I'm kind of don't like myself and I act like a complete asshole when I'm triggered and I don't know how to do this. You know, that's way more vulnerable. I've always said that I don't really grow unless I'm in relationship because it's a mirror, Mm -hmm. you know, like my friends don't call me out on my stuff. I mean, they will if it's like really egregious. But the little stuff, you know, they'll just take a week off or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I also feel like that's why I've been single for a long time is that I'm, you know, part of me is really scared of a relationship where I have to deal with a lot of, you know, the uns- unsavory parts of, of my character, my personality. Yeah. Yep. Give it a few months, few years and, and all that would come out. And that's the beauty of partnership. I both want it desperately and also really terrified that Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be able to step up, that I'm not worthy of it, that I don't have the tools required to make it work. Yeah. It's a lot of fear there. 
Yeah. And you're working with that currently? Yeah. I mean, I'm working, I mean, I'm doing this work and I'm working with a therapist. We've been working together for a couple of years now. But you know how it goes with with therapy sometimes. Like, you know, I'll come in and one day I'm talking about career fear or aspirations and then it's body image stuff and then it's relationship stuff and then it's family of origin stuff. And, you know, therapy for me is always, it's a long game. Mm-hmm. So I'm working on it that way. And I'm also trying to stay connected with people that I'm dating. You know, if I am dating, I, I try to stay connected rather than the old patterns of cutting when the thing doesn't seem perfect mm-hmm. or when it doesn't work for me exactly in the way I want it to work. Yeah, nice. I stick around. Yeah, growth there, right? Yeah, yeah. And I'm also, you know, to be honest with you, I'm like sort of in love with a f- woman who's not really available. And that's kind of... <laughs> I'm sure your listeners can't relate to that at all. <laughs> <laughs> My listeners know all of... Well, they know a little bit about it. But, you know, it's a that's totally a safety mechanism. Yeah. Right? Because I know that part of me knows that kind of it, it, it might not work. Yeah, it kind of works for you because you get to not have to fully open up to someone who's not available or you can like make it look like you want to. But if, if, so long as the person in your shoes is choosing the unavailable partner, they're hiding to a degree. Yeah. Yeah. And if they really wanted uh, to be met and seen and known deeply consistently over time, they wouldn't be choosing what they're choosing. Yeah. Yeah, I had a friend a family, old family friend who had this experience. He he was like a doctors without borders. You know, he'd go into like war territories and help out uh, some of the locals. And he had this experience where he was found himself at the end, you know, on the sharp end of a, of a gun basically. Mm -hmm. And thought that his life was over and he was really bummed that he was still single and didn't have any kids. And he made the decision right there that, if he survived this, he would start dating completely different. Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't going to be for fun anymore. It was going to be for like finding partnership. Mm-hmm. And he survived and he found partnership and, you know, they lived happily ever after. Are you looking for partnership? Totally. Though? Yeah. You I are. Am. Yeah. But it sounds like there's a conflict in there. Yeah. I mean, there's a there's a person that I would like partnership with who's not totally quite He's not available yet. I'm like that guy who's like kind of waiting around. You know, I just never thought I would be that person mm-hmm. who's waiting for someone for someone else's relationship to end. Yeah. But I'm also trying to be kind with myself that that is where I am. Right. And that's okay. Yeah. You're not judging yourself like, you're not doing it right. Doing it <laughs> like the classic guy sort of inner voice. No, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at myself with compassion, like, yeah, okay, you're you like this person, and you'd like to you'd like to explore what partnership with them looks like, and right now you have to stand by if that's mm-hmm. going to happen. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to stand by for some time until the pain gets too much, and then when there's pain, that's when I change. Yeah, that's how most people do it. Yeah, you did um, recently. You did a, a sort of informal poll of your social media. I love this, by the way. Mm-hmm. What women want for men and what men want for women. Yeah. And you're currently doing sort of like a podcast series on this stuff. And I think it's so valuable. And 
one of the things that women want from men sort of at the top of the list is emotional availability. Yeah. And I've heard this before time and time again. I want a man who's emotionally available. And I'm not really sure what that is. Yeah, what what does it mean to be emotionally available? Right, it means when your woman cries, um, you soften and you can empathize and um, you're like there, holding her through her emotional upset. And you don't run away, you don't make her wrong. You, you actually feel like some of her pain um, in your own way over in your side. And you're like, wow, that's so hard. Yeah, I can really feel that. And you, you can actually feel it in your body, in your heart. You might tear up, um, things like that, you know? It's, um, it's really the capacity to hold someone else's emotional experience. And this is why so many women won't trust a guy because it's like, no, I'm not going to be vulnerable because you think I'm too much, too needy, too emotional, too sensitive, blah, blah, blah. And so I don't feel safe opening up to you because the guy has rejected his emotions for years. And he's like, get over it. It's fine. It's not that big of a deal. And he minimizes her experience. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know how to validate it. Or tries to fix. Yeah. Problem solve, fix. Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, part of being emotionally available is, is being present for the other person's experience. Yeah, that's right. And being able to be with them in that. And then certainly your own experience, right? So being right. available to yourself and your own sadness, your own joy, your own fear, your own anger. It's being available to all, the whole range, the whole cocktail in there. When I get sad, I just go, oh, okay. <laughs> sadness is here again, you know? And I, and I sort of, I welcome it. I welcome it like any other emotion instead of, I used to really try to distract myself from it or change it. You know, I'd go for a long run, I'd go to the gym, I'd try to get some, you know, some feel good feelings in there. And now I just, I like, I embrace it. I go, okay. I mean, you're here for a reason. So let's, and do you allow yourself to cry? Yeah. Yeah. I don't cry very often, but I definitely allow myself to cry. It just, it just, I, I just haven't had one of those like big cries in a long yeah. time. Yeah. You know, the last time that happened was actually a whole bunch of times with an ex-girlfriend who broke up with me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that also has part of this fear of intimacy that I might have is because I just really don't want to be hurt that way again. Right. Because it was really, it was, I mean, the most painful thing I've ever experienced. Yeah. And it went on for a long time. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Longer than the relationship. So, oh, wow. um, yeah, it was intense. Yeah. Yeah, those are intense. But I also get the impression that it's hard to be emotionally available, like available to your partner for whatever it is they're experiencing if you also aren't available to yourself. Like if you can't recognize it in yourself, how can you recognize it in somebody else? Yeah. I mean, I pushed away women who were emotional for years until I realized it was because I was repressing my emotions. How do we start moving towards that availability? that emotionality? Um, you got to decide if that matters to you. Mm. If uh, this is something you want to, if you, if you value this, if this is actually a, a thing that could be beneficial in your life. Uh, and then I think it's pretty straightforward after that, but a lot of people are ambivalent. Uh, they're like, oh, I'm not, I don't want to do that because I might get hurt or 
well, it's not safe because I don't hang around anyone that, you know, would kind of hold space for me and my emotions. Uh, they've set their life up, in other words, to support not being available emotionally. So, you know, it might be working for you to not be emotional. That's fine. But it's definitely going to inhibit you from having a deep, intimate relationship. You can't have great sex or a great intimate relationship long term. Um, you can in the short term without an emotional hard connection. You can do it again, one night stands or honeymoon stage or being sexually promiscuous. You can have great sex doing that. But long term, say in a marriage, uh, long term relationships, the only thing that's going to sustain that is a strong heart connection. Mm. That's such a powerful message, man. Because I can, I can really relate. You know, I've had, I've had great promiscuous or casual sex in my life for sure, and it that doesn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, uh, it's that intimacy, it's that heart connection, it's that, it's that depth that I really that I seek out now. Yeah, and that the the casual sex game is over. Like it just doesn't do it for me anymore. Mm-hmm. Good. That's yeah. Yep. It, it it sort of was you know it was like uh, eating ice cream or smoking pot. It it filled a need. Yeah. And and it was fun. Yeah, it's great. There's nothing wrong with it, right? Yep. No, not at all. Mm-hmm. But it it didn't wasn't nourishing my heart. Yeah. And that's what I want now. So I'm willing to wait and to not have sex in order for me to meet someone who can meet me there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's inspiring to hear that, to hear that from you. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I like that you're taking a stand for yourself here. Sometimes you, you gotta, you gotta, um, you gotta do the work. I'm curious what, what is the work that you're doing these days? You know, what's, what's your next level of development personally? Yeah. Um, continuing to grow the school. So it's a lot around being a business owner and a teacher. And um, when I say the school, I mean the relationship school. We're wanting to reach more people and reach our goal of hitting a million teens and young adults someday. And so it's just a never ending workshop to learn what I need to learn in order to accomplish my goals. Yeah. And then, um, you know, starting a book project that feels exciting. So those are probably the two big ones. What about in your relationship? Yeah, we're, we're solid. Um, we're working on a, uh, <laughs> a teaching a class this summer at a psychiatric conference in July. That's what kind of we're working on. But inside of our relationship, you know, we always work on keeping our connection strong. Um, in every which way to, and have a great vibe with our family and each other. So that's, uh, that kind of work never ends. Um, but we we're both so committed to it that it just, it's not that difficult because we have so many tools now. We move through things efficiently, but doesn't mean they're not challenging. You know, we have our challenges, but we, we move through them. Yeah. I learned a lot of great tools from the, from the transforming conflict into love workshop and that was just i mean that was two days i can only imagine what's in your toolkit right nine months and you know just imagine nine months of that type of thing like it's um pretty 
pretty amazing. And you know, not everybody's into that. Like we, we geek out on this shit. Right. Um, but <laughs> it's, uh, it's what I love to do. Oh, this is, you know, this is like nails on a chalkboard for some people. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's fine. They have other stuff that I, that doesn't light me up. Yeah. Where can we find um, you and the relationship school? Yeah. Relationshipschool.com. And currently our podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and it's called The Smart Couple, but we're changing our name to The Relationship School podcast here shortly. So depending on when this comes out. That's, so that's the whole, the relationshipschool.com. That's where it all happens. Yeah, that's where we are. And there's different trainings you can find on there. And um, yeah, I'll be back at Kripalu next year, 2020. I'm stoked. That was awesome. I really liked that workshop and I'm glad that people are getting these tools. And at the Relationship School, you have coaching programs. Is that right? Yeah. So we train people now to be relationship coaches. And then we also have coaches that have been certified by us that people can hire. Uh, They're on our website. Um, We have three levels of our coaches training, level one, two, and three. And uh, we just certified what? uh, 12 level one people this last weekend and six level two people and one level three person. So, uh, and our next enrollment starts in August. So there's, there is support out there for people who want, who want to do this work. Absolutely, man. There's, and if you're not big on therapy coaching, you might try coaching relationship coaching specifically. Cause we don't, I come from a therapy background and it's super useful and we, we stick to coaching because we want results and we want to get people results. And yeah, there's just different techniques we use. Um, if you could describe what love is to you, we're going to end on that note. It's challenge and support. I always love these answers. They're always so different. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, man. I really appreciate your time and your work and, and your presence. Yeah, man. Good to connect with you, Sean. Um, great meeting you in Kripalu and uh, look forward to when this comes out. We'll promote it. Let's climb some cracks together one of these Dude, days. that would be so fun, especially if I get back into it. Hey, lovebirds. Thank you so much for spending this hour with me and Jason this week. And this seems like an appropriate time to say that if you are struggling in your relationship or in your ability to open up and be vulnerable and you want some support, then reach out and find a coach and explore with them what you might be wanting to work on and how they might be able to help. So, Jason has some folks over at the Relationship School, and I am also a love coach. So reach out to him or to somebody else that you trust, or send me a message, sean at thelovedrive.com. That's S-H-A-U-N. And let's figure out what you're wanting to work on, how I might be able to help, and what working with me costs. I am here to support you. And if I can't help you, I'm happy to help you figure out where you can get the support that you require. You don't need to do this alone. Thank you. Have a beautiful week.